Welcome to the Metro Church Podcast. We are a warm and vibrant gospel-centered church with campuses in the Philadelphia region, passionate about the gospel, community, and discipleship. If you'd like to learn more about joining our community or would like to give to our ministry, please visit us at metrophilly.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Malachi chapters 3, verses 1 to 2, and verses 6 to 10. You may also follow along on page 8 of the bulletin. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launcher's soap. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> if you're new or visiting Metro today, I want to welcome you uh, to our church. You need to know for the past uh, 11 or more years, we were very careful over these years to uh, shaping our culture, the culture of our community. Um, But one of the areas where we didn't shape well uh, is uh, with respect to uh, our relationship with money. And uh, and so for the next month, um, in the season of Thanksgiving, in the season of giving, and for those of you who are college students, you're probably wondering, well, how is this relevant to me? I don't make a salary. I don't make any money. It's very relevant because it's training and it's equipping and convicting uh, to prepare you uh, as you continue to grow in faith and uh, into your professional lives. And so in this season of giving, in this season of uh, thanksgiving, we're going to be looking at four passages over the next month that deal with our relationship with money. And after each lesson, um, we're only doing this for over the next several weeks, uh, we're going to be issuing a call to action. Uh, we're going to share a little bit of our vision, our need, and ask you to pledge an increase in your own giving in, in two ways. And we're going to go into that uh, very shortly. Now, the reality is, if you really want to mature in faith, if you really want to grow in faith, it doesn't happen when you leave maturing in your view of money behind. It can't. Those two are very intimately tied together. Now, before I really get into this passage, you need to know that we as a church, we've never taught from the pulpit how to give. In 11 more years, we have never once taught how to give. Uh, We've actually only preached on money five times in the last 11 years. It's really, it's been a disservice in many ways that I take responsibility for as a pastor. Um, You need to know the Bible speaks 10 to 20 times more about our wealth and our giving than it does about sex. Do you know that? 
So we really need to hear this, um, especially because many of us grew up uh, in families or really just not having cultivated a spirit of generosity. What do I mean by that? A lot of us, a lot of us, uh, right before church, your parents may have slipped you that dollar bill before you enter into Sunday school. Some of you remember that. That may be the case. Um, and your parents, they had great intentions. Um, it's nothing against what your parents have done. They had great intentions. But it's that law of unintended consequences. Because that $1 that you gave each week, the $1 that they slipped into your pocket each week, one, it was never our money. We never really learned uh, to give from our own money ever since we were children, you see? Uh, And so, and maybe some of you are like, well, I didn't have any money. I didn't have anything saved. Regardless, giving became a very, very foreign thing even since uh, since we were children. Secondly, because of that $1, anything more than a dollar, even as you get into college and after college, just feels like a lot. And so three, we never really learned uh, what it means to cultivate sac- a sacrificial life. And four, uh, that's unfortunate because you never got to see how much your parents gave. I mean, a lot of us, our parents were immigrants, immigrant, coming from immigrant families, and they gave tremendously working all those hours, really just kind of coming together and not even learning this language, having to learn and start from the ground up, and yet they have developed uh, and cultivated a spirit of generosity uh, in their churches, and yet we never really had a lot of visibility into that. Older generations, they gave a lot. They were very generous. And besides, regardless of all that, even if you gave a lot, it doesn't uh, assure us of a, a proper heart of giving, uh, and so this month, we're going to begin, uh, in many ways, a spiritual journey of faith regarding the gospel, our wealth, and our generosity. And we're going to begin with this passage. And this passage, is, this passage teaches us three things. One, the power of money. Secondly, the idolatry, you know, why it has a power over us, the idolatry of money. And lastly, how you can be free from that idolatry. The power of money, the idolatry of money, how you can be free from the power of that idolatry. First, we're going to look at the power of money. Verses 8 and 9, it's a pivotal part of this passage, and it begins with a very interesting question. God asks us, will a man rob God, yet you rob me? That's what he says. What does he mean by that? God is indicting his own people, and he uses a very interesting image, very interesting imagery. Remember, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and it's a book of prophecy. Malachi was a prophet. Prophets were raised by God and sent by God to represent God whenever the people of God abandoned the law, whenever they abandoned his word. That's verse six. They have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. So when you abandon God's law, God raises up a prophet. Or uh, if, you, if you have abandoned God's holiness, so you become a wicked people, a wicked generation. Or if you abandon God's mercy and compassion, so you become oppressive or uncaring for the poor, people who are homeless. And Malachi, he was a prophet during Nehemiah's day at a time when things in Israel were relatively uneventful. They were quieter. They were calmer. We want that life, don't we? We want that quiet life. We want that time of peace. That's what we're working for, right, here in this room? Malachi came in and was raised and sent, and he asks through a series of questions. He asks through a series of questions that, you know, God is challenging his people on a number of issues. 
remember, Israel, God's people through history, they never did well in times of prosperity or peace or stability. Throughout history, they've never done well. Terrible track record when it comes to how we deal with times of stability. And this was one of those times. They got spiritually lazy. They neglected God. The Bible says over and over, the people forgot God. And in chapter, chapter 3, in this passage, God asks, will a man rob God? That word, rob, it's not a typical word that you see to, to mean that word. In fact, it's only used one other time uh, in the Bible. And it means to pillage, to plunder. Actually, a harsher word, to rape. It's a violent word, much more violent than taking something that belongs to some, somebody else. And God's saying, you are doing this to me. You've come into my house and you've plundered me. You've come into my house and you've pillaged me. You've raped me. Now, when the people hear that, they say, huh? How? And God says in verse 8, in your tithes and in your offerings. In other words, by your lack of generosity, by the way you hold on to your wealth, by the way you spend on yourself and in your families and in your homes, but you withhold from me and you withhold from others. You're just consuming. You're acting like a consumer. You're just consuming from me. You're just taking from me. You're raping, and you're pillaging, and you're plundering from me. I'm going to pause a second. By God saying, you are robbing me, he's saying that simply by withholding your offering, by withholding your tithe, you're committing a violence against God, an evil against God, And they say, how? So essentially, this passage is showing us, one, that our lack of generosity is a violent evil, an offense against God because of our relationship with money. And secondly, we are blind to that offense. That's the power of money in our lives. Why is it an evil? Why is it an evil? Back in the ancient times, back in the time of King David, uh, you look at the book of uh, First Chronicles, uh, chapter 28 to 29. What, what David does is he wants to build a temple for God. Up until this point, there was no temple. He wants to raise a temple for God. So what he does is he goes on one of the greatest financial funding campaigns of all time. He wants to raise money to build this temple. What does he pray? What he prays is, everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Wealth and honor come from you. He's talking to God. He's praying. His wealth and honor come from you. Everything comes from you. And we've only given you what comes from your hand. You know what that means? One, everything we have is a gift. By sheer grace is a gift of God. Everything that we have is a gift from God by sheer grace. And, and none of what we have is ours. Well, that's what that means. Who gave you your job? Some of you, you worked really, really hard to get there. But who gave it to you? Who gave you your wealth? Who gave you your, your retirement portfolio? Who gave you your gifts that helped to earn uh, that money? Who gave you your home or that nice family that you have? Now, we struggle with that. What I just said, we struggle with that. If we're really, really honest here, we say, uh, but in the end, this, is, this money is mine. In the end, I earned this, right? I mean, I'm the one who studied. I had to get into that school. I had to get that job. I had to interview. I had to pay my dues. It's, it's, and my, my wealth is really based on my skills, my work ethic. I pursued those opportunities. I had to network to get there, right? That's what we're saying. If we're really honest, that's what we're thinking. Now, look, Malcolm Gladwell, he's a New York Times bestselling author. One of his best books, at least I believe, is, is called Outliers. 
It's a book about how success actually happens. And essentially what he says is, in order to succeed, yes, you need a certain amount of intelligence, but how much? How intelligent do you need to be? Because the fact is that most of the things that make us successful, you can't earn. It's predetermined where you were born, who you were born from, your heritage, your genes, the time or the period in which you were born. What he's saying is a lot of us think, well, I got here because I work hard, I'm very intelligent. But the reality is that wouldn't have mattered if you were born in the dark ages in the 13th century. That wouldn't have mattered if you were born in Korea in the 1930s. You see, you think it's because it's your gifts. You think it's because it's you worked hard when the most important factors are really circumstances that are out of your control. God gave you these opportunities. God has set everything up for you. And secondly, not only is all of this then a gift from God, but our wealth was never ours to begin with. If, if God gives you a certain amount of wealth, when God gives you a certain amount of wealth, that, that is a blessing. Remember, our relationship with God is covenantal. God is our king And we have been established as vice regents, so to speak. We are his stewards, the stewards over his land, the stewards over the earth. And what have we done in our sinfulness? We have ruined the earth. We are ruining the land. We were stewards over his people, and we have ruined people. You see, we're stewards in our homes, and we've ruined homes. You see, so in a sense, everything we've been given is under our care the way an investor gives a portion of his wealth for us to take care of. We're stewards. In other words, we're not owners. We're more like brokers and stewards, managers. And if, and if you grow the funds that have been entrusted to you, yes, you're going to enjoy the fruit of that labor, a small portion of that labor, but that wealth was never yours to begin with. Some of you, you're wealthy enough now, you have an investment manager, a financial planner, uh, and you invest wealth into that person. You know, if some of you are investment managers and wealth is entrusted to you, but if you treated that money like it was yours, if your investment manager or a financial planner treated your wealth like it was his, that would be criminal. It's called fraud, you see? You would be a thief. You can, there are harsh penalties, stiff penalties for people like that, and that's what God is saying. You rob me. You are robbing me. He says, present tense. He says, right now, that's what you're doing. Right now, in front of him, meeting with God, singing about God, worshiping God, hearing from God, and all the while, you are breaking into his house right here, and you are plundering from him, stealing from him, pillaging him, and raping. God says over and over in the Bible, the world was created to be interconnected and integrated, a place of peace, holistic peace, peace in every dimension, not just financially, but environmentally, relationally, in every way, the world was created to be interconnected and integrated as a place of shalom, that place of peace. So if God entrusts you more with more money than somebody else, that's still his wealth. It's still his money. And he wants you to steward that. He wants you to integrate then that wealth that he has entrusted into you as a steward into this interconnected world, this interwoven world to hold it all together so that everyone is better cared for. And he says, this is how, this is my plan of redemption. This is how the world is going to get restored. And when everyone views their wealth this way, whether you have a lot or a little, remember Jesus honors a woman who brings two copper coins. 
Well, so it must not matter how much you give. That woman only gave, that woman gave so little. What Jesus is saying is that woman gave everything that she has. You see, she recognizes that it all belongs to God. Even the little that she had in poverty. And so when you view your money that way, whether you have a little or a lot, the world becomes a safer place. We're ruled by godliness and compassion and empathy. We're reflecting, in a sense, the character of God, his image as a gracious giver, a happy, gracious giver. And everyone then, the world, society flourishes. Do you know, historically, that those who give in the church, statistically and historically, those who give in the church actually fare better than those who don't? I didn't know that. But the thing is, we don't give. You never give in order to receive. That's a different gospel. That's a different teaching. It's a false teaching that's out there. And there are people out there that teach you, well, you, you, you got to give in order to receive from God. That's false. But again, there is this special connection, though, between what God entrusts to his people, what we give to God, and the flourishing of the society and the world around us. You see, there's almost like a feedback loop. He gives, he entrusts, you give, then he gives, and he entrusts, and you give. And society, as a result, flourishes because it's all interconnected and interwoven together. But the problem is, God says, you act like you're the owner. That's the problem. We're constantly battling God for control and ownership of our lives and of the world. And as a result, we just give what we think is enough. So we're, instead of contributing to the, to the interconnection and the integration of society, we're contributing to the degradation of society. The world is integrated, and now it's becoming disintegrated. The world is connected and interwoven, and now it's unraveling. And that's the evil. He says, you are plundering me. You are pillaging me. It's a harsh word. And he says, but he says, you're also blind to it. You don't even realize it. Money has this blinding power over us, unlike other sins. Unlike other sins, the love of money, that perceived need for more money, right? Uh, the anxiety over not having enough money, not over the things that we have or that we want. The Bible says we are so blind to it, we cannot see. Luke chapter 12, this is now the New Testament. Jesus says, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. In other words, greed takes many forms. Greed takes many forms. But why does he say, be on your guard? I mean, you never hear Jesus saying, be on your guard against all kinds of lust. Be on your guard against all kinds of adultery. Be on your guard against all kinds of mother, uh, mother uh, against murder, right? Why? I mean, there are many different kinds of murder. It's not that greed is more important the way you handle your money is more important than the way you handle your body, uh, the way you handle sex, or the way you handle your malice. But look, if you commit adultery, you know you're committing adultery. There's no question. But you never know. And we always justify acting out of our greed. We're blind. And even more, we never believe that greed is the real problem because one, we all believe we've got, look, I've got bigger sins to deal with than acting out of greed and handling my love of money. And secondly, everyone here in this room, when you think about greed, you can think of somebody else that's greedier than you. You see, it's easy to justify yourself when you can do that. We all believe that somebody else out there has a bigger problem with handling their money than ourselves. And so it's difficult to even get people to the table and to talk about it. Wealth has, our wealth, our greed, our money has this insidious blinding power over us. And the Bible says it's a problem. Our greed, our decadence, our materialism. 
And the Bible says that that is a major reason why the world is falling into decay and disintegration and unraveling and spinning out of control. And if the Bible says that we're all blind to it, then we all need to begin by assuming that it's all true about ourselves first. At least we got to begin to assume it first. We got to start there. And look, there are people in this room, you are incredibly generous. You are great givers in this church. And I, I, wanna, I don't know who you are. I, don't have, I have very little to no visibility uh, in terms of who gives in this church. We're grateful for you. You're incredibly generous, I'm sure. But still, you need, you need to begin here too. We all need to at least start here and check ourselves. When was the last time you asked yourself, is my giving proportional to what God has given me? Hardly ever. Hardly ever. And therein lies that blinding power of greed. That blinding power of money in our lives. In verse 8, God is saying, you are robbing me. And the people ask, how? And God answers, in your tithes and your offerings. There is the guideline. He says, I set the standard by which I want you to gauge your greed. What's the test? The test is the tithe. 10% of what you've earned. In verse 9, God says, you're all under a curse. Wealth, your wealth has gripped you. That's why you're robbing me. Have I not provided for you? Have I not been faithful for you? Have I not rescued you when you were enslaved? Have I, have I not been your shepherd? Have I not been your father? Over and over in the Bible, God refers to himself as our lover. He says, have I not been faithful and true to you? Remember, God's relationship with his people is covenantal. It's through a covenant. He saved us, and then he brought us. God saved the people out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, brought them to, this, to Sinai, and then gave them the law. He didn't give the law as a condition to get saved. He rescued his people out of slavery, brought them to Sinai, then gave them a law. Why? He says, because when you obey, you are my treasure. Where is treasure? But when we violate that law, when you violate the covenant, as in any agreement, any covenant, there's always a curse. There's always implications. There's always ramifications. It's a promise. We don't sit there and say, well, God is so harsh. It's part of the agreement. What do I mean by that? When you buy a home, everyone here, unless you're just buying it straight in cash, when you buy a home, we all get a mortgage. You understand the mortgage, right? There's a bunch of paperwork on the day. It's called closing. And you're just signing your, quote, unquote, life away. Why do they say that? It's because there's lots of commitments that you're making. The bank has one commitment. I'm going to give you the money to buy this house. You've got thousands of commitments that you're making back to all these, to your lender. And when you violate that commitment, there are sanctions. It's a curse. You could lose your house. And if you do, you never say, gosh, that lender is so ungracious. The bank is so mean. <laughs> we don't say that, right? What we say is, I failed to live up to my contract. I failed to live out my covenant. I, I deserve this. It was stated. It's in writing. And God gave it to us in writing. It's called the law. I love you and love you and love you. You are my people. You are my treasure. But being my treasure, I want you to obey. That's what he says. In verse 10, God says, bring the whole tithe to the storehouse. That's the storehouse of the temple. 
Bring the whole tithe to the storehouse that there may be food in my house, food in the temple. He says, that's what you should be doing. Now, some of us are wondering, but that's the Old Testament. Jesus already came. Jesus already came and went. Do we still need to tithe? In Luke chapter 11, this is the New Testament. Jesus is talking with the Pharisees. And what does he say? Woe to the Pharisees because you give God a tenth, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter. That's justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former, without leaving the tithe undone. In other words, what's Jesus doing? He's affirming the tithe. Jesus himself assumes the tithe. And he says, you shouldn't leave the tithe undone. And that makes sense. Why? Think about this. Those Old Testament folks that we just read, King David, he saw a promise of Jesus. He saw a promise of Jesus. Jesus was promised one day, every generation, they had a kind of redeemer. All through the Old Testament, in that generation, there was a savior in that generation that everyone looked to in faith, trusting that God would send the ultimate redeemer who would undo all the wrongs of sin in their lives, in our society, in this broken world. But in the New Testament, there wasn't just a promise. Jesus comes. And so the New Testament church, that's us now, the New Testament church, we not only had a promise of Jesus, we see Jesus in full. We know who he is. We know what he has done on the cross for our sins in rescuing his people. And so why would we be expected to give less than the people of the Old Testament who gave incredibly The New Testament church, they gave even more as a result. If you read passages like Acts chapter 2, start in verse 42 and on. It says they sold everything they had and they just gave and gave and gave. And they enjoyed the favor of all the people around them. Even the people on the outside looked at that and said, that is radical. That is amazing. In this society, it was so that many gods and they were pursuing their own lives and they were just living very materialistic lives in the greatest empire in the world at that time, which was the, the Roman Empire. They looked at the Christians and they said, that is amazing. Because I've been taught to seize power and they're giving it up. I've been taught to hoard wealth and they're giving it up. And so women and orphans and widows are flocking to the church. And the church expanded radically. Just as radically as people gave. So the church gave even more. Jesus is implying here that the tithe is not a ceiling then. It's actually a baseline. And he says, don't trust what your heart says is enough. Because wealth, your wealth, your money has a blinding effect on your soul. And the best test is, do you tithe? Are you giving? Are you able to? Is your grip on your wealth loose enough that you can give generously, radically to people? Are you giving? Start with the tithe. Don't end with the tithe. Start with the tithe. It's a great test. Because when it comes to our money, we know, boy, we get very uncomfortable, don't we? We don't talk about Even with our best of friends, we don't talk about our wealth. Today, we're open about everything. Think about your community groups. You share about everything. Your marriage, your sex life, your addictions, drug abuse, your children. But that grip of money is so great, we bristle. We never want to talk about our money. That's the power that it has over us. Secondly, why does it have such a power? It's the idolatry of money. Verse 10, God says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Bring the whole tithe into the temple that there may be food in my house. Food in the temple. What does that mean? You see, in ancient times, you had a temple. Today, we don't have a temple. 
So you can't just say, I mean, I wish you could say this, but you can't just superimpose this to mean what God is saying here is the church today. The temple is not the local church. They're not the same thing. In ancient times, even though the temple was physically far from most people, they had to make a pilgrimage to the temple, they still gave. And that giving, when they gave, it supported the spiritual well-being of all the people, all of society, and the welfare of their entire culture. No one local church today, no matter how big that church is, no one local organization, no matter how wealthy or big it is, can do that today. So what God is saying, I need you to give radically. To your local church, yes, in part. But I just need you to give. To give to as many efforts as you can that will serve your holistic burden, my burden, God's burden. For the city, for the world around you. This is not an issue of, hey, if you're a Christian, you're a member of this church, you better give to Metro or else. No, look, I would love to say that. I would love to say that. We need it. We desperately need it. But I would never dare pitch to you Metro's needs as more important than another. And yet, what I will say is, if you were free from the power of money in your life, what would you give? What would you do? And yet here's what God says. Yes, not, he says essentially not all things are equal that you're giving to. God, people say, how do we return to you? In verse 10 he says, I want you to give to the storehouse. That word storehouse is a Hebrew word for God's treasury, which was stored in the temple. He says, this is my treasury, the place where the silver and the gold, what people gave, that's where it was stored. Every religion has a temple, a form of temple. In fact, all of us, I'm going to submit, I'm not going to go into this, but all of us, whatever it is that you believe can save you, there's a temple for it. You believe your retirement portfolio can save you? Your temple is your bank. Your storehouse is your portfolio. You get what I'm saying? Whatever it is that you believe is your God, and in those ancient times, every religion had a temple, and every temple in the world had a treasury. It was used to support the worship of their God, and it was support, used to support the advance of the glory of that specific God. So when God himself says, bring me the whole tithe, put it into my treasury, into my storehouse, he's talking about his temple to support the worship of God, to advance God's glory. He's saying, I need you to make that your priority. Why? Because God knows if you're not doing that, then your tithe is going to a different God. Your tithe is going into a different temple. Your tithe is going to a different worship, and it's going to advance the glory of another God. That's why money has a power over us. Idolatry. If you're not giving your tithe to God, it's because you're tithing to your real God. Now, there are people in this room, they're saying, well, you see, I've got huge debt. I've got loans. I've got bills. My job is very tenuous. I'm always worried about what's going to happen. Everyone I feel like is up here, and that's why they can give. But I'm kind of down here. I'm so behind. Wherever your money is going, there's your God. And there's where your salvation is. That's where you get a sense of worth. That's where you get a sense of meaning and purpose. It doesn't matter what you say you believe. What matters, it's about a, it's about a place where, where your money, it's about where you place your money because there's your real security. There's where you feel a sense of power that, and you're going to be working and working and slaving uh, for that. 
Because that's your real master. That's your real Lord. Now, it doesn't mean we don't always worship money in itself. We often worship what that money gets us. Maybe it gets you approval. Maybe it gets you status, a better reputation. Maybe it gets you that one relationship. Sad, but maybe it gets you that one relationship that you've been looking for. You see, if I just have, my, if I just have wealth, then I can attract people. I have better attraction power. That's sad. It's tragic, you see. That's what God is saying. And think about it. Then you're leaving ultimate security to find security elsewhere. It's always a lesser security. Then you're finding ultimate, you're leaving ultimate power to get power elsewhere. It's always going to be a lesser power. Then you're leaving ultimate control, a sense of certainty to find certainty another way, you see. Then you're finding you're leaving ultimate worth. In fact, the very Latin word where you get the word worship is the Latin word worth-ship where you subscribe and you, you ascribe everything, every faculty, your heart, mind, will, your finances, everything, your strength is, is, is attributed to one. You're ascribing it to one entity. You're saying that is the sum of all of my worth. And so we apply to it worship, worship. That's where you get the word worship. He's saying, I'm leaving ultimate worth to find worth somewhere else. I'm leaving ultimate approval and intimacy and love to find approval and love and intimacy somewhere else. Then you're leaving all these. You're leaving ultimate wealth, ultimate richness to find wealth somewhere else. And none of these things are even going to come close to getting what you really want, to getting what you really wanted in the first place, what you need. Only the assurance That you're known by God, loved by God, shaped by God, that you can return to God anytime, that God is your real Savior and He is your real Lord. Only the assurance that you are known and loved by that God can give you that that what you're really looking for, what you really want. That's ultimate power and security and control and certainty and worth and approval and wealth. You see that? But think about this. No amount, I mean, no amount of wealth in your bank account is ever going to prevent illness, severe illness. No amount of wealth is going to ever prevent cancer. No, no amount of wealth that you have is ever going to prevent getting, an ac- getting into an accident, a tragic accident. No amount of wealth is going to prevent mental illness or heartbreak. God is not only all you have, God is all you need. He is the abundant shepherd, a gracious shepherd. He's our provider. How can he free us from this grip of idolatry? You go all the way back to the first part of this passage, verses one to two. God leads with this. He says, see, I will send my messenger. By the way, the word Malachi, that's what it means, my messenger. I will send my messenger who will prepare a way before me. Then suddenly the Lord that you are seeking, what you're really looking for, will come to the temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, what you're really wanting, the intimacy that you're really seeking, the security that you really need, the protection that you're really longing for, the relationship and intimacy and love that you desperately are seeking. He says he will come. Every book in the Gospels of the New Testament says, well, this is, this is a prophecy, and the messenger is John the Baptist, and the Lord who is to come, that is Jesus. 
Centuries after Malachi, the book of Malachi was written, on Palm Sunday, everyone is calling out to Jesus Christ. He's riding into the city, and they call him king, and they call him Lord, and they say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He's the one who comes. And they're waving their palm branches, and what does he do? He rides in, and he goes straight to the temple. And you know what he does at the temple? He clears the temple out. He messes the place up. He chases everyone out. He's overturning tables, everything. He's essentially tearing it down. And in John chapter 2, the Pharisees, they're indignant. They come to him. They say, how dare you do this? In other words, what authority do you have to do this? And Jesus says, tear this temple down. I will build it again in three days. The apostle John, reflecting on this, he says, but the temple that he was speaking of was his body. What is Jesus saying? Tear me down. And in three days, it's going to mark the end of all temples once and for all. Now, what does that have to do with our money? Think about this. Where is your real storehouse? There's no more temple. Where is your real storehouse then? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, where your treasure is, there is your heart. What does that mean? In every person. There's something that you're investing your life in. That is your storehouse. Where you say, if I just have this, then I'm going to have that security that I'm looking for and power and intimacy and control and, and approval and worth, meaning. Then I'll have it. And the way you know that is you absolutely can't live without it. You will do anything for it. You will pay any price for it. You will be willing to die for it. You see? Well, Jesus Christ came. He's the king who comes. And instead of residing in the place of Shalom, that's Jerusalem, in that place of Shalom, that symbolic place, he's driven outside the city and he's crucified on a cross. Jesus Christ, he gives up his throne for the cross. And so he gives up his title and he gives up his wealth. He says, I am the true temple, but I'll be torn down. And so on the cross, it's Jesus' body that's broken and his blood that's spilt. His blood is spilt, you see? Jesus Christ tithed his body and his blood. That means he gave up everything. He gave up everything. And when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? What he's saying is, God, the Father, is my ultimate security and I've never abandoned it. I've never abandoned him. He is my ultimate power. He is the source of my certainty and my control. He is my worth and my meaning and my significance and my status. He is my approval in him. I have sonship. I have ultimate wealth, ultimate treasure. He treasured his father and he never left him. But then he says, the father has departed from me and now I'm totally bankrupt. In a sense, Jesus' storehouse, Jesus is a true temple torn down, but his storehouse was in the father. Everything, his treasury was his father. And the father adored his son. The father loved his son. The father's storehouse was his son. So on the cross, both God the father and God the son were robbed of their treasure. It was taken away from them. It was pillaged. It was plundered. Jesus Christ lost the father. The father lost his son. Why? So that you could become his treasure. You could become his treasure possession. We deserve the curse. So Jesus Christ takes on the curse. 
That's been promised since the Old Testament. You are the treasure. Jesus Christ is absolutely not willing to live without you. He's willing to do anything for us. He's willing to pay any price. He's willing to die for his people. And he did. Because where his treasure is, that's where his heart was. He has set his heart on his people. And we're saying, I need to save? We're saying, I, 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 otherwise I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to be at risk. We're saying, well, I, I need to, I'm afraid I'm going to be alone, so I need to take care of myself. The only person who was ever truly alone in the universe, in history, was Jesus on the cross. On the cross, what do you see? Jesus Christ, he's decaying. Why? Because he and the Father are one. And on the cross now, you see them ripped apart. So where there was integration, Jesus is now disintegrating. Where there was interwovenness, interconnection, Jesus' life is unraveling. And where there was blessing in the Father, in the Son, there was curse. Separation from God, the ultimate curse as a penalty for our sins. And because his life is falling apart, because his life is unraveling, the sky grows dark, the rocks are splitting, the temple curtain tears in two from top to bottom, the world around him is unraveling. Why? Because Jesus Christ gave up his sonship so that we could become sons. He gave up his security so we would have ultimate security. He gave up his power so we can have ultimate power. He gave up his wealth so we could be rich in him. And when you see to the degree that you see that you are his treasure worth dying for, he can become your treasure. And that grip of idolatry can be broken. You will do anything for him because he has already done everything for his people. And when you see him tithing his body and tithing his blood for you, your tithe, your giving, your offerings, it's like nothing. Jesus gave up his sonship. He gave up his kingship. He gave up his throne for you. He gave up the father for you. That's like nothing. As the apostle Paul says, I consider everything a loss. Nothing compared to what? The surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Look, this is a church. Churches, church has Christians. I'm never gonna guilt you into giving. I don't need to. I don't need to guilt you into giving. But I am going to make a plea that if you're not giving, if you yourself are not giving in big proportions, you're getting spiritually lazy. You're getting spiritually complacent. And more so than experiencing the true intimacy and blessing of God, you're going to start to feel the dissonance and experience the curse in some ways because we are robbing God. And God says, test me on this. You never see him saying that. But in this passage, he says, test me on this. If you're not giving away in big proportions, something other than Jesus is your Lord and Savior, and that is the tragedy. Think about this. Think about the radical generosity of Jesus who died to break the power of your sin and idolatry and greed. There is the freedom from the power of greed. There is the freedom from selfishness. There is the freedom from, from the evil and the blindness. Now you have clarity. Are you free? That's the question. Well, then how do we respond? How do we give? I don't, you don't need to be guilted. You don't need to be coerced. I'm not going to shake you down and say, you must die. You must die. Give me it all to me. I'm not going to do that, you see. What I will challenge you to do is reflect on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Reflect on his love for you. And then say, 
Here's how you respond. I want to love like he loved. And I want to give like he gave. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the Metro Church Podcast. If you were encouraged by today's teaching and are looking for a gospel community, we invite you to join us. To learn more, visit metrophilly.org. To give, visit metrophilly.org give.